0: Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Conde Nast Traveler. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co host Meredith Carey. Hi! This week, we're joined by a guest whose adventures we've been following and talking about on this podcast for, well, quite a long time. Blair Braverman is a professional dog musher, writer, and author of the book Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. And most recently, she completed the grueling Iditarod race, also known as The Last Great Race on Earth. The competitive expedition spans 938 miles, takes participants along grueling, treacherous trails amid brutal sub-zero weather conditions. Since then, she's been adjusting back to normal life, and we're so excited to talk to her today. Hello, Blair.
1: Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? Wow, the Iditarod sounds so intimidating when you describe it, but that's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to
2: know that it is as intimidating as it sounds. Um, <laughs> Before I started reading your book and followed you on Twitter a couple years ago, I only knew about uh, mushing through Snow Dogs featuring Cuba Gooding Jr. So for listeners who are not familiar with your story, how did you get into dog mushing in the first place?
1: Oh man, that's uh, I grew up in California, so it's kind of a mystery. It doesn't really make sense, but I lived in Norway as a kid and I always was like obsessed with dog sledding books. I don't know. I always tell parents, be careful what your kids read because it (laughs) will affect their lives. And so when I was 18, I actually um, left California and I went to a Norwegian dog sledding socialist boarding school. And that's where I got into dog sledding. And from there, I became a tour guide, taking people on dog sled tours and, um, you know, working with other people's dogs and eventually got my own team a few years ago.
2: What goes into getting your own team of dogs?
1: um, A lot of money. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, for me, it was really making sure that I was at the right point in my life to be really responsible for them for the long haul. You know, when you have a team of dogs, you have these you know, wonderful days in the winter when you're out mushing and, you know, it's snowing and the weather's nice and you get to just sort of traverse the wilderness with your best friends and it's magical. But you also have days when the weather's terrible and you have all summer when the dogs aren't running, but they're still dogs with needs and they need, you know, attention and care and exercise and love. Um, You don't just park them in the garage over the summer. And, and then they're, you know, they have very long lifespans. They live to generally 12 to 14. So you have to make sure that if you're getting your own dog team, it's not just about, oh, I'm going to have fun going with runs on the dogs, but you're really committing to a team of dogs for their entire lives. And uh, so for me, it was just a matter of making sure that I was in a place in life where I could do that responsibly. And so I imagine
0: after you sort of built your team of dogs, there must have been that first time when you went out with them alone into the wilderness. Do you remember what that time was? That's a great question. I
1: don't think I do flame is going to be so (laughs) devastated. I know. I know she is. I just sent her outside because I was like, she's going to jump on me during this interview.
0: For those quickly who aren't familiar uh, with Blair's Twitter feed, I advise listeners to follow it immediately, almost solely for the dog content, which is fantastic.
1: (laughs) And you will become best friends with them all. Um, Yeah, they're they're very good dogs. You know, I don't remember it because it was sort of gradual. I got uh, my husband was a cowboy actually i mean he he worked with horses but he was also a cold weather survival instructor in the military so he had no dog sledding experience but he had like a ton of animal and outdoors and winter experience so i sort of converted him like he had you know most of the skills and i like tricked him into applying them to our dogs so then once we were both in and he has this farm that was when it really became time to get our own team and we started with 6 dogs And, um, I do remember the first couple times we went out with them. Flame was one of those dogs and it was just wild. I mean, we had like, our equipment was like not even second or third hand, like fifth hand equipment tied together with various pieces of rope like on trails that we hadn't scouted, you know, just getting like dragged and on going down the asphalt and trying to figure it out. And like, I'd been a musher for a long time, but we didn't have you know, the equipment, and we hadn't scouted the trails. So so it was definitely an adjustment, and we were getting to know these great new dogs. And uh, a year later, we took over a dog team for someone, a musher who was getting out of the sport. So then we took on 15 more dogs, and all of a sudden we had 21, and that's when we were really like, this is our life now. Um And we were really completely all in once we had 21 dogs.
0: And so... Since then, arguably the biggest thing that you've been working towards is the Iditarod race. For the uninitiated, beyond the little garbled introduction I gave about it, what is that race exactly and why is it so big and so important in the mushing world?
1: That was a great introduction. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. (laughs) It really captured the grueling nature of it. The Iditarod, there's 2,000 mile dog sled races. And no one's really sure how long it is. People say a thousand miles. I think the official distance is 1,049, but that's because Alaska is the 49th state. So like really like people GPS it and it's different every year, but some somewhere between 900 and a thousand miles. It's really like the Olympics of long distance mushing or whatever you think of as sort of the premier flagship event of the sport. And the Iditarod crosses from... Anchorage to Nome through the Alaskan wilderness, you go up and over the Alaska range, you cross parts of the frozen Bering Sea, you are completely alone, and you cannot have any assistance with your team of dogs. So each musher goes out with 14 dogs, and you cannot add dogs, so you and those dogs cross the entire space entirely by yourselves, Um, and, and you're able to send equipment up ahead. You're able to send food to checkpoints along the way. And there, there are veterinarians at every checkpoint. So they're fantastic. If you have any questions, um, you can talk to them and they're giving the dogs physicals to make sure that they're, you know, in top shape the whole way. But other than that, no one can help at all. You don't have a pit crew. It's you're entirely responsible for getting them safely across the state of Alaska and the race. It's based on a few things. It's based on um, it follows an old gold rush trail, so it's it was partly developed as a way to keep that trail alive and that tradition alive. Another thing that the Iditarod commemorates is a dog sled relay that happened in 1925 when the kids in Nome, Alaska, were getting sick with diphtheria. You may know the story of Balto, which is you know part of the story, but there was no way to get the diphtheria medicine to them in time to save their lives using sort of technology like they tried to use a train they tried different methods and finally someone organized a dog sled relay across the wilderness of the state and it was mostly alaskan natives who were mushers and using mushing um, for a subsistence lifestyle and they were able to bring the medicine all the way in a very short amount of time and save the lives of the kids of Nome. So dog sledding in Alaska and in other places, as well as the Midwest where I live has a long history as part of a subsistence lifestyle. It has a lot of history with indigenous traditions, trapping, like uh, actually fur trapping (laughs) is how a lot of mushing came about. It was used. it, It just mushing is the best way to travel without technology through cold places. And so, you know, when snowmobiles came along and 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 mushing sort of started dying out as a lifestyle, there was also a resurgence in efforts to keep it alive as a sport. And so, the Iditarod is really the flagship event of that effort to keep this lifestyle alive.
2: What was training for your specific journey like? Because I'm I assume it was very intense. <laughs> <laughs>
1: My husband and I did nothing else for a year. I think it's safe to say it was completely all encompassing. We live in Wisconsin and there is great mushing here in Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota, uh, especially the upper peninsula of Michigan is like prime mushing territory. That's about an hour from us, but we wanted to bring the dogs to Alaska to train. So we actually moved into an eight by 12 cabin without running water that was 64 miles from the nearest road and we lived there with the dogs sort of adjacent to a backcountry lodge all winter and so whenever we went to get like dog food or supplies it was like an eight-hour trip by dog sled to get to our truck and then a multi-hour drive to get to you know Fairbanks or Anchorage where we could pick up supplies and it was um it was fantastic. It was the best mushing I can imagine. We were on the Denali Highway, which is this highway that is completely closed in winter and it's just groomed snow. So you're literally on a highway that is a snow trail <laughs> and you can mush forever on it, which was amazing and we would do um usually 40 miles a day. Uh so but you work your way up to it. So we'd get the dogs ready, and we had 20 dogs we were training for this team that was going to be 14 eventually. Just seeing which one seemed most into it, which one seemed like they would thrive the most doing this long race. And just every day, you know, you wake up, you take care of the dogs, you go out for a run, you're out there all day. Sometimes you run 40 miles and then you camp you know, just in the snow, you bed the dogs down and you start a fire and and you try to catch an hour or two of sleep out there. And, and then after a couple hours, you, you wake up and you feed your dogs, you melt snow for them and, and, and you keep mushing and you could basically go forever that way.
0: When it came to leaving that little cabin behind and that routine, were you ready or did you feel like this was a lifestyle that maybe you could kind of commit to?
1: Oh, man, it got tricky because we were doing other races. And so it got really hard about that lifestyle. It was perfect for training. It was absolutely like November, December, early January. I can't imagine better mushing in the world than being out there. But as soon as we started doing shorter races toward the end of January, where you might do like a 200 or 300 mile race just for fun. My husband was doing his Iditarod qualifiers and... You know, it's just good for the dogs. They like being at races. They get to see other dogs, and it's a it's a good way to have a two hundred mile training run too. If you go to a course that's set up, and um, things got really tricky then because every time we were going out, we had to, you know, mush for a very long time, and and we were bringing supplies back and forth, and there was no way to like run out and get something for my Iditarod prep, and it just became very chaotic at that point. So I think that I would absolutely live there and do that again for training. But I can't imagine doing it during racing season when every week we're going to different places with our whole team.
2: So once you finally got to Anchorage to start, can you just kind of walk us through? I know that that it takes a long time and like we have so little time to talk about what it was actually like out on your own. But I'm just curious what the experience that you had been working towards was actually like once you got going on the Iditarod.
1: It was very surreal because I've been reading about this since I was a kid and hearing stories. And and so I remember, you know, the start is extremely dramatic. There's thousands and thousands of people with signs and they're cheering for your dogs and the dogs love the attention. And so you're in this parade, basically, when you first set off. And then all of a sudden you're not anymore and you're like, wait a moment, like I'm in the Iditarod. <laughs> like this is this very real thing. And, and um, you know, I remember my first night on the trail when I hadn't really gotten into my routine um, and you do mush through the night. So I was stopping at roughly four to six hour intervals was my goal. But I remember the first time I camped out on the trail and I started, I was number 11 So I started ahead of a lot of teams. And then when I stopped, a lot of teams were passing me. So it was just you're in this darkness and then you see this light come out, come out of this black night. And then these dog teams run past you silently and disappear again. And it just felt like the most surreal thing I could imagine. It felt like the Iditarod should be different, you know, like it felt like when you're in the Iditarod, everything should feel different. But it was just me and my dogs and some really very intense terrain, the hardest terrain I've ever seen. But at every individual moment, it's just you and your dogs. It's not fundamentally different from all the ways you've been training.
2: What was the biggest challenge that you faced while you were out there?
1: I think the hardest thing for me was that the obstacles kept coming. So I kept telling myself, like, oh, my gosh, like that was the hardest thing I'll encounter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, we just went through, like, we just crossed the Alaska range. We went up and over a mountain range by dog team. Oh, I just fell through some ice with my sled. Oh, I just, you know, all these things. I'd I'd be like, okay, but it's, you know what? Like, from here on, at least I got through the worst part. And then there would just be something else that I could never have conceived of that would be a new tremendous challenge. But my dogs took care of me. I mean, I'm taking care of my dogs, but they're also looking out for me in their their spirits, if that makes sense. I mean, they're, you know, they're wagging their tails, they're running, they're, you know, licking my face when I come over to give them snacks. And so then you want to not let them down.
0: I'm interested to know kind of when those hurdles kept on coming, what tricks did you use to stop yourself from feeling really sorry for yourself?
1: One thing that's nice about being in the wilderness with dogs is that you cannot despair because you're responsible for keeping your dog safe. So you don't have the luxury of self pity, because you have to act. You have to keep your animals safe. But it definitely got challenging. I mean, I I just have this vision, and this is this wasn't a tremendous challenge, but it just like these mountains and these hills, and it was at night, and so my headlamp was illuminating. There's little reflective posts next to the trail that go a thousand miles. That's how you know where you are and we'd get to the top of this big mountain in the darkness and all you could see are like the stars overhead and then the little reflective dots that sort of look like stars and you we'd go down some enormous hill and then i'd lift my headlamp and i'd just see the reflective dots rising up into the sky again <laughs> and i'd be like okay we're just going to like break trail on another huge hill and it would feel like you know, you're like dying by the time you get to the top and then you get to the bottom and, and you look up and it, the lights rise into the sky again. <laughs> you Just like one after another. And I just had to sort of lie to myself constantly and say that each one was the last one. Just every single time. Okay, this is the last one. After this, it's going to be flatter. After this, you know, the biggest challenge for me in the first 500 miles of the race was that there wasn't a great way to get momentum. I felt like... um You know, especially because I trained on the Denali Highway where you're just on this sort of like beautiful curving highway and you get into a rhythm. All of a sudden I was on this trail with sort of moguls where snow machines have gone over it and there's hills and you just can't sink into the kind of rhythm that we'd gotten into in training, which is something I would do differently. I would make sure to train on different kinds of trails in the future. But it just psychologically, it's very different when – you know, every minute you're running next to the sled or going around things and steering and um, going over hills, versus when you just get to sort of get into a rhythm with your dogs and and be there quietly as you cross the terrain.
2: So, obviously, you're on these trails just with your dogs and by yourself, but other mushers are passing you, or you're passing them. And a fact that I find really interesting and exciting is that a third of the Iditarod competitors um, are women. And so I'm just curious what the experience is like to be competing in a group that isn't solely comprised of men, like a lot of competitive outdoor activities are.
1: Yeah, that's something that's so cool about mushing. And this year, um, you're right, it had the highest percentage of women ever. I think it was almost one third women, which was very, very exciting to be part of that. So mushing is one of only three sports, I believe, where men and women compete together at elite levels. There's no men's division or women's division. It's just mushing. So it kind of becomes a microcosm of society in that way. I mean, there's definitely issues of sexism in the sport, but you also have an interesting phenomenon where men can't be dismissive of women because they've lost to women and they've seen... (laughs) You know, I, I, there's actually so much respect for anyone who's been on that trail or been out there with their dogs that, you know, men aren't able to discount women in a way they'd be able to, if they never had to go neck and neck with them. You know, I do worry about being vulnerable alone in the wilderness to sick people in a way that I wouldn't have to worry about if I were a man in the same way, but, um, but I haven't had bad experiences with that. It's just something that when you're a woman, you always have in the back of your mind.
0: You know, when I think of sexism and outspoken men, I think of the internet and you're very public about all the things that go into being a professional dog musher and you're very public facing on your Twitter feed and in your writing about those experiences. One thing I remember is you posted this great video about everything it takes to dress for sub zero temperatures. And then <laughs> yeah. there were all these men sat on their asses who knows where responding to your tweet telling you like what you were doing wrong. Um
1: I yeah, was- yeah, there was there was one guy it was because I'd come in from mushing in 30 below and I had my friend film me while I took off my layers just to show how much you wear. And uh and I was wearing a lot. Whenever you go mushing, you have to expect that you might end up out there for days. So you're not just dressing for two hours if you're going on a 20-mile run. You're dressing for, you know, a moose attacks you and you end up having to rest in a snowbank for days until you can fix your sled with a tree or whatever. You know, like you don't know what's going to happen. So I posted this video of, you know, a ridiculous number of layers. And this man wrote back, um, this is unnecessary. I go out in 30 below in line. (laughs) Jesus. This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, I'm curious
2: what your response to those sorts of people are, and then also just why it is important to you to be so so easy to share with everyone about what's going on in your life on the internet.
1: You know, for being a woman on the internet, because I do share a lot about my team and my life on Twitter, I get a very small amount of harassment, knock on wood, so far, I know a lot of women who have it a lot worse in terms of being harassed online. In terms of, yeah, you know, I um, I love talking about my dogs. That's all, that's all any musher wants to talk about. I mean, mushers tend to um, not necessarily like spending that much time with other people. There's a reason that we shape our life around being alone with dogs. But if you're talking to a musher and you start talking about their dogs, they will talk to you for a hours they'll be like oh you know the thing about you know raven you know she had this uh this itch on her ear so we were figuring it out but then it just it turned out that like you know there was this bird and like she really liked the bird and like then on this part of the trail like she was looking right because her ear was itchy and then she saw you know like it doesn't even matter it doesn't have to make sense they just want to tell you about their dogs forever so that's what i want to do too because it's the most exciting thing to talk about but i um when I first got on Twitter, I did it because I was working more as a professional writer and everyone told me you have to do that. And for a couple of years, I really didn't post anything about my dogs because I thought I would not be taken seriously as a writer um, if I were posting cute dog pictures all the time. And um, at some point, I just stopped caring about that. Like what I think what I realized is that like serious writers like cute dogs. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's no conflict there. <laughs> um and at that point it was just like a slippery slope because once I started just like completely indulging myself and telling dog stories all the time and then people cared and like wanted to read them I was like, "Oh, this is bad. Like I'm never going to do anything else. All I want to do is is tell people about my dogs." And so I started it almost became a project where I think of, you know, using Twitter to tell stories about wilderness. You know, wilderness and outdoors culture can be so exclusive. It's often about keeping people out by highlighting a very certain kind of outdoors person, which is like a young, white, able-bodied, you know, a lot of men, a few women, like, a very specific kind of person who gets to be like an a- a elite outdoors athlete that I have no interest in that. You know, what's interesting to me about the outdoors is it belongs to everyone. It belongs equally to everyone. And, and so I started telling these stories and, and just trying to represent the outdoors as I experience it, which is a a haven and a place of great adventure and not, you know, it is very dramatic. I do very dramatic things in wilderness, but I'm just as compelled by, you know, hanging out under some trees, rubbing a dog's belly, as I am crossing the frozen Bering Sea alone by dog team. And and I realized when I started telling those stories that it it was helping to connect with other people too. I mean, my favorite responses that I get from, from telling this sort of, you know, I almost think of it as a storytelling experiment where someone can sort of dip in and, and read a story about my mushing trip that day. But if they follow for months or years, they're going to watch the puppies grow up and become the dogs who end up leading the team. And they'll see like, oh, you know, it's so exciting to see someone say like, oh, I now I get it. I understand why this puppy Clem, you were teaching him to run through water when he was a puppy because now he's able to ford rivers and get you safely through the Iditarod. You know, that sort of connection is so exciting to me. But but the most meaningful responses I get are just people who use the dog team as a kind of inspiration to challenge themselves outdoors. And I do not care what that looks like for some people challenging yourself outdoors might mean sitting out on the porch in the morning when you wouldn't do that otherwise, or going for a one mile walk in a park by yourself when you would never have done that otherwise, because you you would always think of it as as something other kinds of people, you know, it's, we have all these ideas about what it means to be outdoorsy or not, but they're fake, they're fake ideas. And so the idea that someone could follow our team and use it to spend more time outside, to spend more time with their dogs, to connect with people who seem different from themselves. Um, that's the most rewarding thing for me.
0: Being so public facing with telling your stories and making the outdoors feel accessible and telling all different sorts of stories about the outdoors, you were also super upfront about going on Naked and Afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I'm desperate to know what made you decide to do it in the first place.
1: Oh my gosh, that was so fun. Yeah, so last August I was on the show Naked and Afraid where which is Discovery Channel and they they sort of drop you naked somewhere for a few weeks. And um I got an email one day inviting me to apply for it me and my husband and we were like, well this could be interesting. Let's see what happens if we just like say sure how's this application process go and that was it and and then like you know we started going through the application process and the process just kept moving like i guess we passed one level and then we passed another level and it just seemed like fun to me i i spent so much of my life Coming up with ways to have adventures outdoors, and it's so much work. And so, the idea of this being like an absurd adventure I would never, ever, ever plan for myself that someone else had completely set up for me, and I just had to show up and do it seemed like a lot of fun. And I had a really good time. It was a very weird experience. I had to leave after um, 14 days, it's supposed to be a three week challenge. But I left on day 14 with an infected brown recluse bite on my neck, and I was sort of rushed to a hospital. And it turns out that I think it had been festering at that point for nine days since I'd gotten the bite. Although at the time, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what was wrong with me until after I'd been in the, you know, seeing doctors for a while. So it was a bit of a bummer not to be able to do the last week with my partners, but. But it was so cool. I just got to see things I wouldn't have seen otherwise.
2: What was the actual experience of being both naked and afraid like?
1: (laughs) They were separate. Um, I mean, nudity, I I was like, okay, whatever. I don't know. I grew up in Northern California. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. I'm like, I'm kind of a prude, but not really. And it didn't seem like it would be a big deal until I got there. And all these cameramen, camera people, I think they were all dudes though, were like standing around me and they were like, okay, take off your clothes. And I'm like standing in the middle of the desert. (laughs) I was like, wait a moment, like already? (laughs) Are you sure? But everyone was super, super respectful. I never once felt like I was in any way not respected or completely safe. So that, you know, it was actually a very pleasant experience in that way. You, You forget about it. But, you know, I always thought nudity was sort of like a gimmick on that show, but it makes it so much harder. You really realize how your clothing is your first line of shelter. It's your first line of defense. And not having it makes everything exponentially more difficult. So it's really a survival challenge more than an aesthetic one. (laughs) In terms of being afraid, I was definitely afraid at times, mostly at night. Because the camera crew was gone and my partner and I would be alone in our shelter without any weapons. I mean, you don't have any. I guess we had a knife and we would hear animals circling us at night. And we had a leopard come in our shelter. These hyenas would circle us every night and we'd hear them from all directions, you know, like twigs cracking. Those were some long nights. That was the scariest part for me. I always kept the fire going really high. You have to keep the flames going. (laughs) and um, the flames scare away animals you can't let it go down to coals so you never sleep more than like 20 minutes at a time because you're just always on edge and you have to like you know you might close your eyes for a few minutes but then you want to build up the fire but oh man I kept that fire going high I did not let that fire get low (laughs) and so remind me where it was exactly I was in South Africa on the border to Botswana
0: okay and so one thing that Really intrigues me about that experience for you is that, you know, all of your kind of feats of adventure take place in extremely cold climates. What was it like going up against the elements in somewhere that was very hot in a landscape that was so different from where you go mushing?
1: Well, it wasn't as different as you would think. I mean, in terms of physically acclimating, that's a huge adjustment. But When you're in deep cold, all of your survival strategies, all of your, you know, mechanisms for getting through the day revolve around staying warm. They revolve around this one feature, you know, this one thing, warmth and heat and and sunlight, right? When you can get sunlight, which isn't very much up there. And so... My experience of being in South Africa was that it was, it was the same kind of environment where everything revolves around a certain resource, but instead of warmth and light, that resource was, was water, you know, water first and foremost, and then staying cool, which is sort of related to water. So it was, a, it was a shift in mindset, but it actually was kind of similar to me because you are really focusing on this one scarce resource as your tool for getting through the days
2: you mentioned that your husband, Quince, also went on the show. And I'm curious because you guys are both so involved in the outdoor and adventure scene, how valuable it is to you to have a partner who kind of understands the ins and outs of what you do. I know that you kind of brought him into the dog mushing fold, but I'm curious uh, what that support means to you.
1: Oh, it's fantastic. It's, It's amazing to have a partner who has the same values that I do in terms of Wilderness and adventure and animals and and travel. And I learn from him all the time. I mean, I there's no one I would rather travel with than my husband. Um, We just have become a team where especially with the dogs, when you travel with the dogs, there's so much work. And there's so much routine. And so having both of us and being able to rely on each other in that way and, and knowing, you know, (laughs) even just knowing like there's certain chores that I hate and certain ones that he hates, but we don't hate the same ones. So, you know, when it comes to like, we're on the road and all the dogs need, you know, to get out and get water versus stretch their legs or we're at home and like you need to scoop the dog poop once or twice a day for all the dogs just to keep things clean for them. And um, we're just able to divide things up really nicely, and we just trust that we're both doing as much as we can, and that makes it so much easier to live this kind of lifestyle. I really would not be able to do the things that I do without having a partner who is all in. Even training the Iditarod, we were both a hundred percent for six months, you know. And I'm also lucky that he's extremely supportive of my dreams and it's not that common for female mushers to have a male partner as their handler, you know, their sort of pit crew who's supporting them. It's very common in the other direction for men to have wives who support them at races, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare to do it the way we do it. And, you know, just that sort of thing means a lot as well that he's, you know, able to support my adventure and, and embrace that and isn't threatened by it.
2: I'm curious, because, you know, obviously, we've talked about how you spend a lot of the time when you are actually out mushing, doing it on your own, especially in races. And I'm curious how you navigate kind of being each other's support system, when you ultimately face a lot of the challenges of like the actual mushing on your own.
1: I think the biggest thing is trusting each other. This was very hard for me actually this year because my husband is Quince is doing his Iditarod qualifiers and and he's been doing longer races himself, which is fantastic. I really love I love it when he races. It's something else we get to, you know, connect over and and I love supporting him in races, but he did his longest race yet in April, which is the Kobuk 440 and it's 440 miles in the Alaskan Arctic. And it was so hard for me to sit in a building and watch his race by watching his little tracker move on a map, you know, like a little dot moving on a map. It drove me crazy. It was incredibly difficult because you don't know what's happening in a dog sled race. And he's used to that. People who watch races are used to that. Everything's a mystery. You see the dot stop moving and you don't know why. And it might stop for five hours or it might stop for longer. I mean, I got stuck at a cabin for 20 hours during I Did Rod and people didn't know why I was stuck there. And um, And so you're constantly guessing and trying to, like, look at the weather and look at the train and try to make sense of it. But I'm used to always knowing. I never have to go through that because I'm the one out there with the dogs. So whatever's going on, I know what it is and I know the steps to take to try to manage it but when i had no idea what was going on i like couldn't sleep i couldn't think of anything else i was a complete mess because i was like what's he doing like what's what what's going on like what okay if this happened like what's he going to do and um <laughs> and he did fantastic but what's hard for me is or what i'm getting more used to as he does more races is dealing with that not knowing because i trust him so much his skills are incredible I mean he's a phenomenal musher he's a phenomenal outdoors person but I'm so used to always being the one who knows exactly what's going on (laughs) especially with our dog team that that's the adjustment for me is like how am I going to learn to handle you know trusting him which I really do but also trusting that things will be okay until I find out and it might be days later before I know what actually happened.
0: And so to wrap things up, we'll throw you a low ball, Um, (laughs) which is a question that we love asking lots of our guests, which are, who are some of the female adventurers out there that you really rate and that you think we should be following right now?
1: Oh, great, great question. Well, I always follow, she's my friend, so I don't know if this counts, but Julie Buckles. Totally counts. Okay. Okay. Julie Buckles is incredible. She wrote a book called Paddling to Winter. And she did an expedition in the Boundary Waters for, I think, two years at one point and is a musher and a, um, you know, former journalist. And she lives here in Wisconsin and takes gorgeous photos if you follow her Instagram and and check out her book. So she's one I always want to follow. And um, my hero, my mushing hero I know this is mushing related, but I figure you don't get a ton of mushing representation. So I'll, I'll go all in is a woman named Martha Schuweiler, And she is the, she's basically, I think the best mid distance musher in the Midwest, you know, period. Um, She's won so many races. She set records and she's, Oh gosh, how old is she? She's a grandmother. She's in her sixties. And is just like the most competent human being I've ever seen I mean she is absolutely one hundred percent my hero. This woman can do anything she like is the best dog trainer I know she like has this rope i this documentary crew followed her, and they like they didn't even believe her that she existed because she like climbs like a fifty foot rope every morning before like building a yurt before like the number of lives she saved. i mean she's just like my my hero in the outdoors and um so so she's the coolest person i know of doing things outdoors right now
2: well we will be sure to link julie and martha's social media in the show notes if we can find them which we probably can if people want to follow you blair where should they find you on the internet
1: probably the best place is is my twitter blair braverman and you can also follow my husband quince mountain he also posts about the team
2: amazing well i'm at oh hey there mayor i'm at lale Hanna, and we will talk to you next week